So turning your Bibles to First uh, Kings chapter 18, perhaps a very familiar chapter, but there are many things in the chapter, even in my own study last week, I found out uh, are so, so helpful and so relevant even in the 21st century. So First Kings chapter 18. As you turn there, we know from God's word that all of God's word, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God, the woman of God is fully equipped to do every good work. So all of the Bible is inspired, all 66 books and the 33,000 plus verses that are there and almost 1,100 chapters that are there in the Bible. But every now and then a particular passage of scripture stands out uh, for its content, for what it is teaching us about the author himself. Uh, we come to such a passage today. And not only that, the passage really exposes the hollowness, the emptiness of false religion in which false gods are worshipped and it points us to the one true God. That's First Kings chapter 18. You know, if you're an immigrant, such as myself, uh, one of the first things that hits you when you step foot in this great nation are the sheer number of choices uh, in a grocery store or a sandwich shop. I remember the first time I went to a subway. Now, of course, we have subways in India as well. But I went to subway here for the first time, and I just wanted a sandwich. And as soon as I went in, I found out that there is no place for the simplicity of my choice. There was no place for that. Uh, just wanting a sandwich is not good enough in Subway. Uh, I needed to know the kind of bread that I wanted, the, the size of bread that I wanted, the kind of cheese, uh, the kind of meat, uh, uh, grilled or cold, Cold, with or without mayo, with or without mustard, lettuce, pepper, onion, with or without honey mustard, olive. And then at the end, I needed to tell them, did I want it toasted or not? No wonder there was an article that came out in 2019 with the title, Having Too Many Choices is Stressing Americans Out. Too many choices. You know, choices are important. Choices have their place in a sandwich store or a grocery store. And it's good and right to have choices when it comes to our eating habits. What is tragic is to bring that same mindset when it comes to our spiritual life. Uh, when it comes to God, the choice is either to avoid Him, that is to reject and deny Him, or it is to acknowledge Him as the Lord of your life and then live your life in line with that commitment. Our text is 1 Kings 18, verse 1 to 46. If I had to put a theme for our text for today, it would be this, and it's in your notes. The Lord is the only living and true God. Uh, the Lord is the only living and true God. Lord there is all capitalized, that is to say it's the is the Lord's personal name as he revealed himself to the Israelites, and that is Yahweh. Yahweh is the only true and living God. Therefore, we are to love him and follow him with all our heart. 
I've uh, titled our lesson for today, Will the Real God Please Stand Up? Will the Real God Please Stand Up? You know, last week, we studied 1 Kings at the end. Edwin taught us from 1 Kings chapter 16 at the end and then the entire chapter 17. And we learned about uh, the prophet of the Lord uh, that appeared suddenly on the scene from nowhere and pronounced a judgment on Israel. And he's introduced without any fanfare uh, in this way. Now Elijah the Tishbite was one of the settlers of Gilead. And he said to Ahab, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. He delivers a word from the Lord. And what was that word? If you are already in 1 Kings 18, turn a page back. Look at 1 Kings 17. And what was that word? That because of the sins of the leadership of Israel, there will be no dew nor rain except by the word of the Lord. And what were the sins of the leadership of Israel? Uh, it was, had to do with Ahab in particular. Uh, go back a chapter. Go to chapter 16 and notice verse 30. Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He exceeded those who came before him in doing evil. Also, verse 31, it was trivial. It was a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. He made light of it. He made light of the fact that he was sinning against a holy God. And then verse 32, he erected an altar in the house of Baal in the capital of Israel in Samaria. Right in the heart of the country is now an altar to Baal. He led his nation in serving Baal and in the worshipping of Baal. He married Zezebel, a non-Israelite, clearly something that was prohibited for the Israelites. He also made a similar arrangement for Asherah, verse 33. And thus it says, he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel before him. And so because of this blatant disregard, this disrespect, this disobedience to a holy God, God was going to punish them. There was going to be what? A, a famine in the land. No crop, uh, no food, nothing to eat. Uh, that was earlier part of chapter 17. And now we come to chapter 18. And it has already been three years since Elijah's word to Ahab. And that's where we pick up in verse 1. Notice verse 1, chapter 18. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in, a th in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. And so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab, and now the famine was severe in Samaria. Before the rain arrives, though, uh, he, he, he prophesies here that rain is coming, but before that rain arrives, there is a showdown, a, a face-off. Uh, there's an open display of power between the so-called God that Ahab had chosen to worship and erect an altar for, Baal, between Baal and between the God of the Israelites. One who had time and time again proved himself as trustworthy and reliable and powerful and dependable. There was going to be a face off. But before we get there, what we first see is the preparation for the showdown, verse 1 to verse 16. Verse 1 to verse 16. Keep your Bibles open because I'm not going to read the text for us, but I'm going to point out the verses that I'm in so that you can follow along 
Uh, notice verse 1 and verse 2. Elijah is summoned by God to go and show himself, that is, present himself to Ahab, to convey him, convey to him that rain is coming. The beginning of the verse tells us, now it happened. Uh, that is to say, something dramatic is about to happen, because it is after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah and came through him. The circumstance will shift in this particular chapter. It will shift from the land being a dry and arid and a dead land to being alive and flourishing and full of rain. And so in verse 2, Elijah goes to show himself to Ahab, that is to present himself to the king. And we are told also in the same verse that the famine was severe in Samaria. And why was it se severe in Samaria? Because remember, it was the capital of Israel. And it was also the epicenter, the very center of idolatry. Uh, it was where the Baal altar was erected and Baal was worshipped. And all the priests and prophets of Baal were there. That's why it was severe in Samaria. In verse 3, then the scene shifts from Elijah, who is perhaps in the wilderness, to Ahab in the, uh, in, in the, in the palace. Notice verse 3. Ahab calls his chief of staff by the name Obadiah. Uh, this is the first time Obadiah is mentioned. And by way of introduction, we are told that Obadiah is one who feared the Lord greatly. His name means servant of God. And uh, as against his boss, who is Ahab, who should have been serving the Lord and fearing the Lord, we are told that Obadiah was the one who feared God. He worshipped God. Now, how do we know he feared God? Notice the next verse. When Jezebel, Ahab's wife, killed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah takes hundred of those prophets, and he hides them by fifties in a cave, and he provides for them bread and water. Uh, that is, he cared for God's people. How do you know someone is a godly man? Well, he cares. She cares for God's people. Uh, he's a godly man. Another indication in the text that he's, he's a godly man, that he is seen doing something for the prophets that the Lord did for Elijah. If you were to go back in chapter 17, we find the Lord providing for Elijah through the ravens. And what is that Ob Obadiah does? He does the same thing. He provides bread and water to the prophets of God. And so Ahab summons Obadiah and tells him, verse 5, I want you to go through the land, to all the springs of water, whatever remaining there are, and to all the valleys, I want you to do that. So, he says, we can find, verse 5, find some grass, some food for our horses, um, uh, so that we can at least keep them alive and not kill them. And the same word that is translated as kill there in verse 5 is translated as destroyed in verse 4. So let's make sure we understand this. Uh, here is Ahab. He says, it's okay for my wife Jezebel to kill the prophets of the Lord, but it's not okay if we have to kill the horses and the mules. It's okay to murder men, and not just any men. These are godly men. These are representing God. So they're godly. It's okay to murder them, but let not, let's not do that to the cattle. Let not the cattle die. As you read that, you think to yourself, what messed up priorities are these? But that's not very different from the world you and I live in. 
uh, where sometimes animals are valued more than human beings. Uh, PETA founder Ingrid Newkirk is quoted saying, a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. According to her, they're all animals. No wonder Ahab is considered an evil, evil man. Evil in the sight of God. More than, more than those who came before him. And so there is famine in the land. And so what does Ahab do? He makes a plan. And the plan is this, to divide the land between him and Obadiah. And Ahab was to go one way, verse 6, and Obadiah was to go another way. From the palace then in verse 7, the scene shifts to the land in general. And while Obadiah is in the land, he runs into Elijah, verse 7. And true to his relationship with the Lord, notice he recognizes him and he shows him respect as the prophet of the Lord, as he falls down uh, on his face in front of Elijah, is this really you, Elijah? Or am I seeing things here? And why does he say that? Because you see, it's after about three years that Elijah shows himself up. Uh, it was three years back that he had pronounced judgment upon Israel, and now he shows himself up. up. He is not much seen in the country and there was no word from the Lord, and now he suddenly is seen. And so he says, is it really you? Notice verse 8. Yes. Yes, it is I. I want you to go to your master, to your boss, Ahab, and let him know that Elijah is here. Notice the response from Obadiah. Verse 9. What, what sin have I committed that you are asking me to do this? It's as if you're handing me over to Ahab so that he can just take me and put me to death, just like he did with the other prophets. Now, why does Obadiah think that? Now, why does Obadiah think that Elijah is giving him up? Notice verse 10. You see, when, when you went miss, missing for three years, Ahab did everything to find you. He sent his servants to all the countries, and when they said, you're not there, they, he made him swear that you're not there so that he could hold them accountable. But he will kill me for lying to him. And I did not lie. In fact, I am a servant of the Lord, he says. I have feared him since my youth. I was the one who hid hundred prophets uh, of the Lord, and I was the one who provided them bread and water. And having done all of that, now you are just throwing me to the lions. Uh, that phrase, behold, Elijah is here, is repeated least three times, verse 8, verse 11, verse 14, uh, to emphasize the fact that Elijah indeed was off the scene for three years. Uh, why does he think he's giving Obadiah to, to the king to be killed? Because it might happen that if I go to Elijah, uh, to Ahab and say to him, Elijah is here, he wants to meet you, and the Spirit of the Lord takes you from there, and you're not there, he might think I'm, going to, I'm lying to you. And that's why he will kill me. What does Elijah say? Notice he invokes the name of the Lord. Verse 15. The Lord of hosts, he says. The Lord of the armies. The Lord of all that exists. As that one lives, it's before him I stand. And it's on the basis of this testimony that I tell you that I will present myself. I assure you, Obadiah, I'm going to be there. Go tell him. And so that settles the matter, and Obadiah proceeds to tell Ahab, verse 16. 
Ahab, once he stole Elijah, is here to meet him. Ahab then goes to meet Elijah. And we're now prepared for some, uh, a grand showdown. What are some lessons that we can draw from this particular passage of 16 verses? Uh, well, first of all, we learn that faithfulness comes in different colors. What I mean by that is what looks faithful for one man will look faithful for different for a different man. So there's, here's what I mean. You see, Elijah's ministry is like many teachers and, and pastors in a church. Very, very visible, very known. But a vast majority of believers really do not have a ministry like Elijah. You know, there are four teachers in this class. We are about 130 or so. so there's four of us who teach regularly. A vast majority of believers are like Obadiah in that sense. It's not a visible ministry that they have. They, they also are someone who serve masters who are not believers, like Obadiah. They do what they're doing as unto the Lord. Uh, it's, it's like our moms in this room who faithfully serve behind the scenes most of the times. And they do it for the glory of God and out of a genuine fear of the Lord. Uh, whatever they do, they do their work heartily as for the Lord rather than men. In a healthy body of Christ, we have both. Those who have a visible ministry and those who don't have a visible ministry. Those who work behind the scenes and those who work in front of it. Uh, someone whose faithfulness is there for everyone to see and someone whose faithfulness is not there for everyone to see. As we look at Obadiah's life, we have a model here of someone's faithfulness that is not, for, not there for everyone to see. And that's what I mean by faithfulness comes in different colors. But secondly, we also learn that the Lord is a patient God. You know, God could have just left Ahab and the rest of the Israelites and let them face their expected destiny. He could have just let them be. But even a famine, a three-year famine, is an opportunity for Ahab to really repent and turn to God from his evil and sinful ways. What does that tell us about God? It tells us that the Lord is a patient God. He desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He does not wish any to perish, but all should reach repentance. He's a God who is ready to forgive, uh, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Uh, perhaps you're here and you are experiencing God's patience towards you even right now similar to Ahab and others who did. So even in the midst of his judgment, we see God's patience. First of all, then, the pre preparation for the showdown. Uh, secondly, the proposal for the showdown, verse 17 to verse 19. Uh, as promised, Elijah meets Ahab, verse 17, and Ahab gets the first word as the king, is that you, you troubler of Israel? You're the one who said that there would be famine in this land. It's because of you that I'm about to let my horses and mules die. It's because of your message, Elijah. You are responsible for the famine in the land. And what is Elijah's response? Oh no, I might be the messenger, but you are the reason for the mess we are in. You are the reason why we have a famine in the first place. I have not troubled Israel, verse 18, it is you and your father's house. And why is there a famine? It's because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord 
and you have followed the Baals. Now stop right there and notice what Elijah is saying. Uh, what you have done, Ahab, is the exact opposite of what repentance looks like. What is repentance? It is to turn from your sin and turn to God. Instead of turning away from your sin and turning to God, you have turned away from God and you have turned towards your sin. You have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed after the Baals. Uh, you have made a choice. You have chosen Baal over the Lord. And because you have done that, you have brought trouble on Israel. You might think Ahab is convinced by that argument, but he's not. Ahab is not convinced that he is the reason. He's still blaming Elijah for the famine, something that's not mentioned in the text. And so what does Elijah do? Notice verse 19. Elijah proposes a showdown, a, a face-off between the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, and Baal and Asherah. Let's put an end to this debate. Let, let's settle this once and for all. Here's what I propose. You go and you get all the people you can get from Israel uh, on Mount Carmel and, I, 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 and bring along with you about 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's stable. Uh, that is, those who are cared by Jezebel. You know, just think, while the Lord's prophets are being killed and murdered by her, the false prophets are living in a life of luxury at her table. While there's famine in the land, the false prophets are being provided for sumptuously. That then is Elijah's proposal. Let's have a face-off. Let's have a showdown. And it's right here. Where is that? It's in Mount Carmel. Notice it's on the left of the map. It oversees the Mediterranean Sea. It's essentially not one mountain, but a range of mountains. And in one of those mountains, you bring all of the prophets, and I will meet you there. What is something that we can learn even from this short paragraph? Well, first of all, and the only one that I have here for us, is those who know their Lord are strong and will do great exploits. As you hear Elijah speak with King Ahab, you, you can't miss the confidence and the courage and the strength with which Elijah speaks with the king. You know, the person who is constantly under guilt, who, the person who is always giving in to temptation and sin, it's as if when he goes in the streets, he sees lions, says the Proverbs. It's, it's he's afraid to go in the streets because everywhere he feels he's going to be attacked. As against the, the man of God, the woman of God, they live confident lives like you see Elijah doing here. He is standing before a man who has just killed many, many prophets of the Lord. But Elijah doesn't let any of that bother him. He's there to deliver the message of the Lord. He has a word from the Lord and he knows that he is God. Uh, Elijah himself has experienced his care, his provision and his power in the past. And there's not been a reason for him to ever doubt this God or ever doubt his faithfulness or trustworthiness. Now, those who know their Lord, they're strong and will do great exploits. Notice also that the ground zero for what's going to happen is Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was the place where there was an altar to the Lord. 
the Baal worshippers came there, they destroyed that altar, and they set up their own altar. It was kind of like a headquarters for Baal worship. And so Elijah says, we're going to go right to the center of the Baal worship center and have this showdown. Now, first of all, then, preparation for the showdown, the pur- proposal. Thirdly, we come to the purpose of the showdown, verses 20 to verse 25. Notice verse 20. As proposed by Elijah, Ahab sends uh, a message and brings all the sons of Israel and the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And as they gather, Elijah comes near to them, and then he addresses them, verse 21. How long are you going to hesitate between two opinions? Uh, The word there for hesitate is the word limp, L-I-M-P. How long are you going to limp between two opinions? Uh, What are the two opinions? Well, follow the Lord or follow Baal. If the Lord is God, he says, follow him, obey him, listen to him, don't forsake his commandments. If Baal is God, then follow him and obey him and listen to him and don't forsake his commandments. But the people did not answer him a word. End of verse 21. Uh, They didn't expect to come face to face with such a courageous prophet of the Lord. And so they were silenced. What is it that Elijah proposes to do? Notice verse 23. Now let them give us two oxen, he says. Let's get two oxen. You choose one, and I will choose one. Let's cut it up. Let's place it on the wood. But let's not put fire under that offering. Let's not put fire there. Then you call on the name of the Lord, verse 24, and I will call on the name of the Lord. You call on the name of your God, Baal. I will call on the name of my Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is the real God. He is the true God. And so the people say, yeah, I think we think it's a good idea. Notice at the end of verse 24. That is a good thought. It's simple and it's a straightforward plan. It gives both the worshippers uh, the same opportunity, the same resources, a great platform to show that their God is the true God, a great platform to provide their deity to show themselves up, a great setup for the real God to stand up. And so we ask, as we started, will the real God please stand up? What can we learn from uh, uh, these few verses that are there? Uh, First of all, we need to learn a little bit about Baal. Who is this Baal? Uh, Well, let's begin with his identity. He is the god of the Canaanites. According to Canaanite mythology, Baal means Lord, and he was the god of the Canaanites much before, long before the Israelites landed in the promised land. He was the son of El, who is the chief god, and Asherah, the goddess of the sea. That's his identity. Who are his devotees? It's King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, the very leaders of that nation. Uh, They were the prime devotees. So naturally, there was pressure on the common man to do what their leaders were doing, to follow their leader, the king in this case. Uh, They were his devotees, and he had many of them because of Ahab and Jezebel. What was his specialty? He was the fertility god, a god of fertility. 
And as the fertility God, he bestowed upon man and soil the blessings of being fruitful. He was also worshipped as the sun god, uh, S-U-N, and as the storm god. If you've seen any images of Baal, he's usually depicted holding a lightning bolt in his hand, uh, who defeated enemies and produced crops. Uh, that's who he was. And so if you were a Canaanite farmer, uh, this was very appealing to you. Uh, because the farmer in this part of the world depended heavily on rains and on abundance of crops for their livelihood. And this was a God that appealed to them. That was his specialty. And notice finally his worship. In what way was he worshipped? Well, Baal worship was rooted in sensuality and in all ritualistic prostitution in the temples. At times, appeasing Baal also involved human sacrifice. You're usually the firstborn of the one making the sacrifice. So you can imagine, as you think of who the Israelites were worshipping, how far they had come from the true God and his worship. And there are times when God intervenes in a way that is abundantly clear that it is a supernatural event in its scope. And so you get a sense that what is about to happen is one of those kinds of events. That's a little excursus on Baal, but there's another thing that we need to pick up here. Uh, Elijah's proposal, I want us to remember, is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Elijah is describing by way of response his counter-reaction to the idolatry that he sees that had, became so, that had become so pervasive in Israel. Uh, this is not a prescription for you and me uh, to do. It's not telling us this is what we need to do with the false prophets of today. It's not saying we ought to do the same thing as Elijah. It's just telling us what Elijah did. And we also have to remember that Israel, though a divided kingdom at this stage, is still a, a theocracy. Uh, they were expected still to follow the law of God as given through Moses, God had clearly told them that if they disobeyed him and worshipped idols, it will result in a famine. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 22 to 24, if you disobey, I will send famine to your land. And that's exactly what happens. Now keep all of that at the back of your mind. You see, Baal is a fertility god. He's the storm god. Think about that as we head into the finale. This so-called challenge then from Baal's perspective, should be a piece of cake. Uh, this is his specialty. He's supposedly good at this fertility thing. And Mount Carmel, as I said, is like a, a home team advantage for him. That's where the center of worship of Baal is. And so the stage is now set as we look at the last section of this passage. And that is the powerful prayer-answering Lord of the showdown. The two things that we will observe here uh, first of all, the emptiness of false religion, and secondly, the power of a prayer-answering God. The emptiness of a false religion and the power of a prayer-answering God. We begin, first of all, with considering the emptiness of a false religion. Notice verse 26. So they take the ox, place the ox on the altar, and just like they agreed, they did not light a fire under the Sacrifice. Instead, what they do is that they invoke the name of Baal to answer them. And being the sun god that he is, 
It should relatively be a minor task for him. But notice a few things about their invocation. They called on his name from morning until noon. Verse 26. Uh, this is at least a four-hour worship service to Baal. Uh, they leaped about the altar that they had made. Uh, that same word hesitate that we came across earlier is now translated here as leaped. Uh, this indecisiveness that Israelites were showing was primarily seen in the prophets of Baal. It was exemplified by them. This hesitation, this going back and forth between two opinions, and they did this even in their worship. They leaped about the altar. And what happens after a four-hour worship service? Nothing. And so Elijah feels it is a good time to nudge them a little bit. Notice verse 27. Uh, to mock them, as, this, as it's said in that text. So he says to them, maybe, maybe you are not calling him loud enough. You need to raise your voice a little. He's your God, isn't he? Maybe that's what he needs so that he can hear you. Or maybe he is busy. You, you need to disturb him out of his busyness. Or maybe he, he's just not there. Maybe he's gone aside. Notice verse 27. Or gone aside. Uh, uh, that is a way to say he's taking a bathroom break. <laughs> he's taking a bathroom break. So just wait a little for him to relieve himself. Or maybe he's gone on a journey. So he needs to be back in the office to take your call. Or maybe he's just taking a nap. After all, it's a heavy task to lift to be a fertility god, to be the sun god, to be the storm god. There's too much on his plate. He must be tired and resting. Once the rest is over, maybe then he will answer you. Now, normally this would not be the best strategy. Can you imagine a believer today, a servant of God, let's say a leader in the church, an elder or a pastor, can you imagine him mocking an unbeliever like this? I would say 99.9% .9 of the times, this would not be the best strategy to share the gospel. Right? But Elijah is not the 99.9% .9 of us. No, he has a unique ministry. He has clear instructions from the Lord to do this, as we will see. And so how do the Baal devotees respond? Oh, they fell for it. Notice verse 28. They cried with an even louder voice. And this time, they went even a step further. They didn't just shout loudly. They even cut themselves with swords and lances until blood just gushed out of them. Uh, this was well past midday now, and it was beginning to be evening for the evening sacrifices. But there was no voice, no answer, and no one paid attention to them. What we're seeing here is really the emptiness of a false religion, the hollowness of a false religion. Uh, you might say, well, that, that's Baal worship. I've never met a Baal worshiper. Uh, really, for me as a pastor, I've never interacted with someone who came and said to me, you know, I am a Baal devotee. But this, what is described here, is not only true of Baal. It's not only true of Baalism. It is true of every other ism that is out there today. 
You might say, I don't believe in Baal. But just see if any of these false gods of today appeal to you. I picked this from Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace by James Montgomery Boyce of his book. This was, by the way, a book of the month a few months back. Uh, these are some false gods of today. He has five of them that he mentions. See if any of this appeals to you. Or see if this appeals to your neighbor, your friend who is not a believer. Uh, there are five of them. First of all is secularism. The cosmos is all that is. The world that you see is all there is. Uh, this is a philosophy that does not see beyond the world, but operates as if this age is all there is. And the best statement that captures this ism is a statement from Carl Sagan in the TV series Cosmos. And this is what he says. He says, the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. So live it up. Enjoy your life right now. Now that leads directly to the second one, which is materialism. If cosmos is all there is, then nothing exists apart from that which is material or measurable. If there is any value found in life, it must be in material terms. And so be as healthy as you can. Live as long as you can. Get as rich as you can. All of that is materialism. Now connected with this is the third one, humanism. Everything revolves around man and is for man's glory. Perhaps you know someone like this, who lives this way. Uh, this is looking at man trying to make sense of himself apart from God. Uh, this exactly describes the situation of Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest secular kings out there. In his, his story is mentioned in Deuteronomy. Uh, one day he goes on the roof of his palace overlooking uh, from the hanging gardens as he sees this, this grand city in front of him, Babylon. And as he sees this splendid city, he says, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? That's humanism. Exemplified by Nebuchadnezzar. But then there's relativism. Uh, relativism rejects absolutes and it rejects absolutes because it rejects that there is a God. And because there is no God, there are no absolutes in any area of life. Everything is up for grabs. Live it up. You make your own morals as you go. And there was a time when the Time magazine was very readable. This was in the late 80s. And during one of those times, in one of the articles, it said, America is experiencing a moral morass, a, 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 a values vacuum. Because everyone thinks they are right. The only person wrong is the person telling them that they are wrong. That's the only person who is wrong. And most of the time, it's a believer who does that. That's relativism. And that leads to pragmatism. Uh, I think this is measuring truth by its utilitarian kind of value. It works for me, so it must be true. And this is the world we live in, especially the Western part. More true of our thought and life here in America than anything else. We are living in the midst of this. Uh, we can't escape this. It's like, it's like fishes in the sea. In it we live and move and have our being. We are living in the midst of this. It works, so let's do this. If I can add two more to this list, it would be selfism. An excessive focus on yourself. This is the world of the selfies that we all live in. Uh, again, don't get me wrong. 
I'm not condemning in and itself. There, are, there is some value somewhere in all of this. After all, false religions do teach some grain of truth, but not the truth. And so selfism is one of those that is prevalent in our culture. And then this one, victimism, blames the misfortunes, uh, one's misfortunes on another's deeds or, or misdeeds, always claiming to be the victim. As you look at this list of seven isms out there, what it does not have space for is the gospel of God. You see, if truth resides in you, if you know what is right and wrong, then you're not going to accept that you have sinned against a holy God. You're not going to accept that there is a God who loves you and he has sent his son for you, that he died on the cross. There's no place for gospel in any of these isms there. You might say, I, I don't think I worship any of these things. Uh, if you don't worship any of these things, we live in a world that does, and it's very easy to let these things influence even you as a believer. A religion, you see, says you just have to try a little more. You know, eight hours of worship service, a little more faith, a, a little more money, a, a little more passion, a little more time, a little more suffering, and then that will satisfy the God you are worshiping. You know, as grand as those words sound, ultimately none of them are satisfying. They all leave you panting for more. It's as if you're not created for this world. Isn't it C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity who says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, in his autobiography, The Confessions, probably the first autobiography, he says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And it is to this God that we now turn as we look at verse 30 to verse 40. The power of the prayer answering Lord. Notice verse 30. After the failure of the false prophets, Elijah invites them again to come to him. And they oblige. Verse 30. He then proceeds to repair the altar. Remember I had told that this was actually originally the altar to the Lord of the God of Israel. It was captured by Baal worshippers, made into a Baal altar. Elijah now tears that altar down, builds this altar to the Lord to begin with. And he begins by claiming and repairing that altar that belonged to the Lord. He builds this altar with 12 stones. And what do those stones represent? Represents the 12 tribes of Israel, signifying that though the earthly kingdom is divided, we are learning after all about the divided kingdom. Though the earthly kingdom was divided, from God's perspective, both of these kingdoms were still God's chosen people. The altar is not only claimed, verse 32, it's now built in the name of the Lord. And around that altar, he begins to make a, a trench. He digs a trench large enough to hold four gallons of water. And then he puts wood on that, and then, and then an ox on top of that, and he asks his servant to to fill four more pitchers with waters and pour it on that offering and then repeat that process three times. Now we can't be sure how much a pitcher holds in terms of water capacity, but we can be sure from what is described here that the altar is overflowing with water. 
and the trench that is around the altar, that is also overflowing with water. You see, Elijah is stacking the deck against Yahweh as high as he possibly can. Why? So that when the fire ultimately comes from Babao, there can be no other explanation except that it was an act of God. Also, don't miss the fact, until Elijah took over, or until Elijah takes over, drought and famine is still very prevalent in this land. There was no water, remember, in this part of the country. And now suddenly there is water and plenty of it, and some more. As you see that, the tide is beginning to change. It's now time to make the offering to the Lord. You notice verse 36. To the last eight hours of prayer that were offered by the false prophets, Elijah offers a mere 20-second prayer. And in his prayer, he invokes the covenantal name of God. Notice verse 36. O Lord, O Yahweh, the same one who covenanted with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that is the one I appeal to. Why does he do that? He does that because he is his servant. And then we find out all the things that he did. He did because we are told God had told him to do. Notice at the end of verse 36. I have done all these things at your word. And so you see now that everything that Elijah did, he merely obeyed God. God had given him this proposal for a showdown. and He was merely following the instructions. That is verse 37, a mere 13-word prayer in Hebrew as he pleads before God. He pleads before God, not because he is afraid God won't answer. He pleads before God because he is God's servant, and that is an honoring way to treat God. Lord, for the sake of your glory, let it be known that you are God. And what does God do? He's sleeping, taking a nap, busy. No, he answers. He answers with fire. Notice verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering. And not only did it consume the burnt offering, it consumed the wood that was wet, the stones, the dust, and the water also in the trench. Moral of the story, end of the story, there is no explanation other than the fact that this was from the Lord and that he had indeed shown that he is God. Fire, by the way, coming down from heaven signifies something. Uh, in the past, in Israel's history, it signified Lord's acceptance and validation of the sacrificial system that he had prescribed. You did sacrifice in the way that he had prescribed, God would send fire from above. Where do we see that? We see that in Leviticus 9. When the tabernacle worship was established, God sends fire from heaven. In Chronicles, Second Chronicles 7, when the temple worship was established, God sends fire from heaven. It's a, it's a green light from God that the sacrifice offered was acceptable to him. What Elijah did on Mount Carmel was acceptable to God. That's what it means. And how do people respond? Notice verse 39. When the people see it, they fell on their face. An outward response to an inward change. And what do they say? The Lord, he is God. The Lord is capitalized, which is to say it is his personal name. Yahweh, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 
we now have identified the false prophets and their prophecy did not come true and Elijah then continues to proceed to apply the law and what was the law well the false prophets had to be executed don't feel bad for these prophets they disobeyed God they were false prophets and one of the consequences of prophesying falsely was that you had to be executed and that's exactly what happens verse 40 seize the prophets of Baal do not let one of them escape and so they seized him and Elijah brought them down to Brook Kishon and slew them there you know we, we, we don't live under theocracy as the Israelites did uh, we don't hold on to those who hold on to the isms of this world we don't catch them and we don't kill them that's not what we are called to do we live in the church age where we are called to faithfully proclaim the gospel and we entrust a person's final judgment in the just hands of a righteous God that's what we're called to do And as you look at this and as you look at the people's response you can see that in the religious landscape of life there's no buffet of gods <laughs> it's not like you can choose one and reject the other no there is only one God the Lord he is God there's only one God and his name is Yahweh isn't this the great Shema hear O Lord hear O Israel rather the Lord is our God the Lord is one there's only one God in Isaiah 43 verse 11 it says I even I am the Lord and there is no Savior besides me uh, thus says the Lord, Isaiah 44, verse 6, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and there is no God besides me. As you come to the New Testament, you find Jesus making similar claims. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is exclusive. He alone is God. He is the Lord, as we see here, that answers by fire. He is the only God. He is active on earth, as we have seen here in verse 30 to verse 40. But not only that, he is also active in the heavens, verse 41 to 46. After the false prophets are killed, Elijah turns to Ahab as he commands him to go up, verse 41, and eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of the heavy shower. Why? Why is there shower? Because now people have acknowledged that the Lord, He is God. He's ready to send some rain. Ahab has made preparations as he makes preparations to head back to Zezreel, his winter capital. Elijah goes further up on the mountain and he prays as he places his face between his knees. Verse 42. He has a servant that is next to him, instructs his servant to go look toward the sea. Remember, Carmel is very close to Mediterranean Sea. And so he asks his servant to look to the sea. Are there any impending signs of shower? And there are none. He sends him seven times. And on the seventh time, he sees a cloud. He says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Go tell Ahab to prepare his chariot and go down. Because a heavy shower is coming. And I don't want that heavy shower to stop you. In a little while, the sky is black with clouds and wind. And there is a heavy shower. Verse 45. Ahab is on his way to Jezreel. Verse 46 tells us the hand of the Lord was on Elijah that he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. At that distance from 
Mount Carmel to Jezreel is about 25 miles. It's about the same as a marathon. And it tells us at the end that Elijah outran Ahab to Jezreel. What can we draw from this passage? Well, first of all, some lessons about prayer. Uh, two things we can draw. If you look at Elijah's prayer in regards to the false prophets in verse 36 and 37, uh, that was a prayer that the Lord chose to immediately answer. He prayed, and within seconds there was fire from heaven. He pleads with God, asks him to send a fire, and it's there. But if you look at the second prayer, which is mentioned in verse 42 to 44, the content of the prayer is not mentioned, but we are told that at least seven times he prayed. He's crouched down on the earth, puts his face between his knees, and there are at least seven times that he offers his prayer. So two lessons. So if you were to read just that first part of the prayer, you would say, one prayer should do it for me. But if you read the second prayer, you would think, I need to keep praying for everything, every time, as long as I'm alive. But here's what it is saying. It's saying to us that we cannot restrict God to one way of praying. We can't put God in a box and expect him to answer because we have prayed. He is God and he will decide how he wants to answer a prayer and when he wants to answer a prayer. We are no, we're no one to place a demand on him. But this is also a reminder, the second prayer, that is, is that we are not to give up in praying for that which we need to keep praying. I know so many of you have told me that you are praying for your friend, your relative, your brother, your sister, your parent who is not in the Lord. It's a great reminder. This prayer is from Elijah. And James actually tells us about this particular prayer in James 5, verse 16 and 17. For three years he didn't pray, and then when he prayed, the rain came. Not only that, here as we look at Elijah's example, uh, that we are to pray without ceasing. Uh, there are those that we need to consistently and regularly pray for. It's a great reminder that we need to keep praying. But this is also more than that. It's about the Lord. Uh, perhaps you're here and you're limping between all the isms that are there. Uh, perhaps no one of you worships Baal. Or perhaps you looked at those seven lists of isms that I gave, the gods of our age. Perhaps you might have something uh, a special of your own and you're hesitating between all the religions that are out there. And according to our passage, there are many isms and religions out there, but there is only one God. Now the Lord, he is God. If there's only one God, he is that God. And on the basis of this text, I appeal to you to follow him. To follow him. What does it mean to follow him? It means to trust him. It means to place your trust in the only way that he has made it possible for you and me to be right with him. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw a sacrifice on Mount Carmel. But there was another and a greater sacrifice that took place on another mount. And that was Mount Calvary. And that was the only sacrifice to God that was acceptable to God that covers your sin and mine. And that is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you take anything from this text, you want to take this. You want to ask yourself, who am I worshipping? Am I worshipping everyone else apart from the God of the Bible? Or am I worshipping the God of the Bible? So perhaps you are in that first category. But perhaps you're here and you say that the Lord, he is God. 
but, but your life does not reflect that commitment. God's word tells us that there can be only two reasons. If you say you are a believer, but don't live like you're a believer, either your commitment is not an authentic commitment. That is very much a possibility. You say, I'm a Christian, but really someone looks at your life and they can't see anything that shows Christ-likeness in your life. Now that means that it's not an authentic commitment. But there could be another reason. It may be that as a believer, you have let sin enter and take refuge in your life. Now perhaps you're holding on to a particular sin more than anything else. Whether you're in the first or the second category, this text makes a demand on your life. We want to make sure that our commitment is real, that our life reflects that commitment, that it is real. That does not mean that you never sin. It means that the overall direction of your life is one of holiness and Christ-likeness. Perhaps you're in that category. Or perhaps you're in this third category. You're here and you believe that the Lord, He is God, and your life reflects that commitment. Uh, the text then is a great reminder and an encouragement for you to keep at it. Don't give up because the Lord, He is God. There is no other God. Jesus would consistently make the claim that he and the Father are one. If you have seen me, he would say, you have seen the Father. He who receives me receives the Father. And so I ask you, have you received the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you walking faithfully as his child? If not, let this text remind us about this great God who is the only God. We are to follow him. We mention the theme again as we conclude. The Lord is the only true and living God. Is the only living and true God. Therefore, we are to love him and follow him with all our heart. Let me pray. Father, what a great reminder from your word. That you are the only true God. You're the only living God. And if that is true, and that is, as we saw from this text, and then we are to love you and follow you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. I will pray for every one of us who is sitting here uh, that we would not just leave from here thinking we just came to fill up one hour before we go to the worship center or we just came after the spending time in the worship center. We are ready to get home. May that not be the outlook towards this chapter. May it be that we would reflect truly on where we are with you. Lord, encourage us if we are truly walking faithfully. For those of us who say we are believers but not walking faithfully with you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Uh, perhaps there's someone here who is not worshiping you as their Lord. Draw them to yourself. May today be a day of salvation in their life. I commit the next few minutes as we spend time at our tables into your hands. Pray that you would be pleased and honored with everything that is said and done. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.